0: So I grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, a port city on the east coast of Canada. Halifax is known for its seaport that sees ships from all over the world descend upon it. During World War I and II, it was often the last stop before Canadian and American military ships would cross the Atlantic. I can remember as a kid being on the waterfront watching the American military ships and even aircraft carriers come into port. Now, before 1997, the tale of the Titanic was one that many have heard of, yet, honestly, didn't really know the whole story. Not so much the case for Halifax, however. We shared some of the story with the Doom vessel. There are, in fact, three graveyards throughout the city where many of the passengers that were recovered from the water are buried. One gravestone in particular shares the same name as one of the characters from the film that came out in 1997. But I will save that for later on. Let's take a look at the history of the Titanic. In 1867, Thomas H. Ismay purchased the White Star Line, a fleet of sailing vessels most known for providing passage to Australia. Ismay soon changed the focus to America, a country that had opened its immigration policy up to anyone, with more than a million people a year immigrating to the United States, and all of them traveling by ship. Now, I mentioned that most of the ships in White Star's line were sailing vessels, In 1854, Edward Harlan became general manager of a shipbuilding company in Belfast, Ireland called Hickson & Company Limited. Five years later, in 1859, he bought the company. This is notable because Harlan revolutionized the industry by switching from wooden decks to iron decks. The strength of the iron decks meant that the company could now build substantially larger ships. In 1861, Harlan brought on a partner, Gustav Wolf, and the company was renamed Harlan & Wolff. Coming back to Thomas Ismay for a moment, when he bought White Star Line in 1867, he made a deal with Harlan and Wolfe to build all future ships in the White Star fleet. In 1892, he did retire and handed down control of his company to his eldest son, Bruce Ismay. At the turn of the century, a trip from Europe to America typically took about seven days. When you have a company that makes a lot of money, eventually big business is going to get involved. And in this case, J.P. Morgan, one of the wealthiest men in the world, formed the International Mercantile Marine Company, or the IMMC, and they began buying up all the shipping companies, including White Star. Although it should be noted that they owned White Star, the company itself was still ran by Bruce Ismay. Now, here's an interesting thing. Since most of the companies that the IMMC were buying were based in England, the British government scrambled to try to keep some of those companies in British hands. One of the last major lines not yet sold to the IMMC was the Cunard Line. The British government made the decision to start subsidizing the Cunard Line. This move made the Cunard Company flush with cash and allowed them to expand their aging fleet. But there was a catch. Since the Cunard Line was being subsidized by the government, in a time of war, their fleet of ships would have to be used for the war effort. So technically, all ships in the Cunard Line were reserve ships of the British Navy. In 1906, Cunard built the two largest ships in the world, the Lusitania and the Mauritania. White Star Line was facing its first real competition. The Lusitania and the Mauritania were a great source of annoyance for Bruce Ismay. The Mauritania, for example, had set the transatlantic speed record at an unheard of 26.6 knots, a record that would stand until 1929. Ismay could only sit back and watch as the canard line became the standard for the transatlantic voyage. In 1907, Bruce Ismay conceived of a new line of ships. He envisioned ships so massive that they could carry more passengers than any other company, and he put a very strong emphasis on a new level of luxury. He wanted the third-class accommodations to rival other companies' first-class accommodations. Over the next couple of years, Ishmael, along with his team of engineers, developed the plans for three vessels, the Olympic, the Gigantic, and the Titanic. Both the Titanic and the Olympic were built simultaneously at Harlan and Wolfe's shipbuilding facilities in Belfast, Ireland. Thomas Andrews, the ship's lead designer, oversaw the construction that included more than 15,000 employees working day and night for almost three years.
1: Over five years, Andrews worked alongside the other shipyard workers. He, too, took on the other hard labor jobs, like any other man. But Andrews was unlike most apprentices. After attending this elite private boys' school in the center of Belfast, he began his apprenticeship at Harland and Wolfe by day, while attending this technology college at night. Ship design had caught his imagination, and under the direction of Lord Peary, Thomas Andrews had become a formidable shipbuilder. Thomas Andrew's passion for shipbuilding was soon matched by his love for Helen Riley Barber, the daughter of another linen factory dynasty. Within a year, this wealthy couple were married and moved to this family home in South Belfast, still here today.
2: It was while living here that great uncle Tommy
3: began a dream of his lifetime. He was to design the three biggest ships the world has ever seen, Titanic, Olympic and Britannic. On the 31st of May 1911, Titanic was launched in Belfast, boasting extraordinary specifications, and Uncle Tommy
2: was at the pinnacle of his career.
1: Upon his death, the family received many cables and letters praising the comfort and courage he
0: showed to others before the Titanic sank. At a cost of $7.5 million, or $140 million in today's dollars, the Titanic was 882 feet long and weighed over 46,000 tons. The ship was designed to have a top speed of 25 knots. Now, that was not as fast as the Mauritania, but the ship would be far more luxurious. See, the Titanic had sort of a unique design. It was built in sections. It had 16 separate watertight compartments in its hull. The idea behind these compartments was that if the ship ever struck anything an iceberg for example, and began taking on water. With the single press of a button, that area could be sealed off. The ship was designed to have up to four compartments, two in the front and two in the rear, to take on water, then be sealed off, and the ship wouldn't sink. Now, it wouldn't be able to continue on its voyage, but it wouldn't sink. Original designs for the Titanic called for 32 lifeboats. However, Bruce Ismay, convinced the ship could never sink, cut that number in half because he felt that the extra lifeboats were taking up too much space on the deck. The Titanic was also fitted with the latest in communication technologies. The Marconi wireless system. This system was primarily used as a way for passengers to send and receive messages while on their trip. The Marconi wireless system had a range of around 200 miles during the day and 2,000 miles at night. And the limited reach during the day meant that the ship would mostly send and receive its messages at night. And they would work as a relay system, beaming messages from ship to ship. And as you can imagine, from time to time, these messages would end up going to the wrong person. What's interesting is that the tickets for the maiden voyage were being sold before the ship was even completed. And in late March of 1912, Titanic completed its sea trials and made its way to Southampton, England. The ship arrived six days before it was to embark on its journey. At the time, Southampton had a population of around 120,000. Most of the city's residents worked in the shipping industry. Most of Titanic's crew were hired from the city just days before the maiden voyage. Of a total of 891 crew members that were assigned to the ship, 699 of them came from Southampton. A last-minute addition to the ship was that of its captain, Edward Smith, a seasoned veteran who had decided that the Titanic would be his last assignment before retirement. Now, Smith had a lot of pull with the White Star executives, and when he requested a second-in-command or a chief officer be someone that he had worked with in the past, the company obliged him. Chief Officer Henry T. Wilde was brought into the ship just hours before its departure. With him now on board, all remaining officers were now being demoted one rank, causing a major shakeup. Rather than taking the demotion, second officer David Blair decided to leave the ship, and he left so quickly that he forgot to turn in the keys to the locker in his quarters. In that locker, which no one was able to open, contained the binoculars that were to be used by the men in the ship's crow's nest. These were the men that were responsible for spotting icebergs. Now, before the Titanic could begin its trip, it had to take on some serious supplies. Here's just a small list of some of the things the ship needed for its seven-day trip. 6,000 pounds of fresh butter. 1,500 gallons of fresh milk, 11,000 pounds of fresh fish, 75,000 pounds of fresh meat, 36,000 oranges, 2,200 pounds of coffee, 40,000 eggs, 10,000 pounds of sugar. Now, here's the important stuff. 20,000 bottles of beer, 850 bottles of hard liquor, 1,500 bottles of wine, and 15,000 bottles of mineral water. All told, the ship had more than 200,000 pounds of supplies. Now, there were 497 third-class passengers on board. Most of the third-class passengers were families immigrating to the U.S. Again, I mentioned that at the time, America had an open immigration policy, but the U.S. did have rules for the ships that would be carrying those to the U.S. To help prevent the spread of infectious diseases, immigration rules stated that third-class passengers had to be isolated from the rest of the ship. And by it, I mean gates were locked 24 hours a day to prevent this from happening. A third-class ticket on the Titanic cost between 15 and $60, or 170 to $460 in today's money. The price of the ticket did include full meals and guaranteed you a bed to sleep in, although that bed may be in a room with 11 other people. There were 234 second-class passengers. They had substantially better accommodations than those in third-class. And second-class passengers were not subject to any of the strict immigration rules. A second-class ticket cost $60, or around $700 in today's money. There were 193 first-class passengers. A first-class ticket cost anywhere from $150 to $4,300, or $1,700 to $50,000 in today's money.
4: There was something about the Titanic that was so very formal. It was so stiff the atmosphere was stiff the uh, cosiness uh, well you know the kind of get together feeling it didn't exist I always remember going up on the lift a little boy said to me you know madam it's quite an honour I'm only 14 years old I'm a lift boy but we were sleeping six in a bunk
5: and uh We were treated like as if we were uh, in a third-class restaurant as regards the food. We were not allowed to go in any part of the ship except the uh, the deck that we were allowed to go on.
6: If you were rich, the decks provided a sumptuous way of life. The band played the gayest tunes and American ragtime dances, and in the splendor of the Café Parisien, the light melodies of the day. The dining rooms, staterooms, and common rooms were furnished in various periods and styles, so that English gentlemen might sit in rooms paneled and adorned like their own at home. And so that those extra good food inches could be counteracted, they even provided a splendidly equipped gymnasium.
0: First class was the true lap of luxury. But the piece de resistance in first class was the two VIP suites. These suites cost $4,300 and they came with their own team of butlers and maids at your disposal 24 hours a day. One of the suites was occupied by the White Star chairman, Bruce Ishmael. Titanic departed Southampton and made two more ports of call, one in France and the other in Ireland, before beginning its journey across the Atlantic on April 11th, 1912. There were no lifeboat drills conducted on the ship and only 16 lifeboats aboard which meant that if disaster did strike, more than half of them on board would not survive. The first two days of the voyage were by all accounts by the book. Now, the ship did receive several ice warnings. 1912 had been an unusually mild winter, which meant that more ice would break off from Greenland, causing, well, more icebergs. These ice warnings were always passed along to the officers who took them very serious. 24 hours a day, there was always men in the crow's nest looking for icebergs. The evening of Sunday, April 14th, was hazy and cold. The two men that were in the crow's nest were Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee. At 11.40, Fleet saw an ominous object in the distance. There was no mistaking what the object was. Fleet quickly ran the warning bell, picked up the phone that connected him to the bridge, and told the officer that answered that there was an iceberg right ahead. On the bridge was First Officer Murdoch, who ordered the ship's engines to a full stop and then to a full reverse. He also ordered the ship be turned hard starboard which meant turning the ship left as far as the rudder would allow. The frantic maneuvers the crew attempted were not enough to prevent the Titanic from striking the iceberg. The iceberg made a 300-foot gash on the right side of the ship, causing flooding in five of the watertight compartments. Now, five compartments certainly meant that the ship would eventually sink. But in theory, there would be more than enough time to get most people off the ship. However, a sixth compartment did begin flooding speeding up the process when captain smith arrived on the bridge he immediately ordered a damaged assessment during this time the ship was still moving forward at a half speed a few minutes after he arrived he ordered the ship to a full stop smith ordered the men operating the marconi system to stand by to send a distress call captain smith along with thomas andrews began to tour the damaged areas thomas andrews captain smith and bruce ismay began to discuss the damage and andrews made the conclusion that the ship was doomed to sink estimating that he had 90 minutes left. At 12.05, the first distress call went out. The message read CQD, M-G-Y. Now, CQD stood for Come Quick Danger, and M-G-Y were the call letters for the Titanic. The longitude and latitude were also sent out. Now, the now standard SOS was just beginning to be used in 1912. However, most ships would absolutely know what CQD code meant. A canard-line ship, the Carpathia, was 58 miles behind the Titanic. The wireless operator, ironically, was trying to contact the Titanic to relay several messages for its passengers. He was able to make contact. He received a distress call passing along to the Carpathian's captain, who turned the ship in Titanic's direction and went full steam ahead. The Titanic had no warning bell or alarms to notify passengers of the impending dangers. The ship's crew members were forced to go door to door, deck by deck telling the passengers to put on warm clothing and their life belts. Now, it's important to stress that things were surprisingly calm during the first 45 minutes after the iceberg struck, so much so that normal activities continued. Most first-class passengers were tired of being out in the cold and returned to their respective cabins.
5: And now let's take up the story from survivors of the Titanic themselves. First of all, an American passenger, Miss Edith Russell, traveling first class. Where were you just
4: before it happened, Miss Russell? In the library. The steward had just called out, 11.30, lights out. So I gave him a few letters to post in the morning, told him I'd pay for the stamps, picked up a book and walked forward to my stateroom, which was on the same deck, A11. As I got in my stateroom, I switched on the electric light, and I noticed a slight jar, followed immediately by a second one and a third one, which was quite strong enough to make me hold on to the bedpost. The boat came to a full stop. I walked forward to my window and saw a grayish-white mass drifting by. Very much surprised, I decided to take my fur coat and go out on deck and see what it was all about. Well, when I got out on deck, I noticed the gentleman standing by the rail and several people and a large, again, this grayish mass. I said, what on earth is that? That? Well, madam, that's a lifeboat, uh, that's an iceberg. <laughs> iceberg? She I've always wanted to see one of those things since I was a child. Well, you're seeing a at Corker now. There's one-eighth above the water and seven eighths below, and believe me, that's some iceberg. So, after that, we picked up bits of ice, played snowballs for a little while, and it was very, very cold. I asked one of the officers if there was any danger. He said no, and I went back to bed. As simple as that.
5: No danger, as far as you were concerned. No danger. Now, what about Mr. Witter, second-class uh, smoking-room steward? What did you think the Titanic had hit, Mr. Witter? Well, I didn't think she'd uh, hit anything. I thought she'd dropped a blade from the propeller, you know. How did you find out what, in fact, had happened? Well, I, well, I went down to the working alleyway, where my cabin is, number seven glory Hall. I was standing there talking to two or three fellows, and uh, carpenter came along. And I heard him say the bloody mail room's full of water. I said, what's that shit? Mail room full of water? He said, yes. I said, well, uh, what about those bulkhead doors forward? He said, they're not holding, Jim. Of course, then I walked into my cabin, uh, number seven glory hole, and I opened my box. I called everybody. I said, come along, fellas, get up. She's going down. So I uh, opened my box, took out some matches, some cigarettes, and I said, come on, fella, get out. what the hell are you talking about? He said, get out of here. And someone threw a boot at me. I said, good night, gentlemen. Just as easy as that.
0: Other first-class passengers who kind of had a sense of what was happening began overflowing the area where their valuables were being stored. Once Captain Smith gave the orders to begin loading the lifeboats, a slight panic began to stir over the crowd. However, Those in third class were being told very little. Just put on their lifebelt and await further instructions. By 12.45, distress flares were being fired into the air. The lifeboats were designed to carry 65 people per boat. The first few lifeboats that launched had less than half of that number. Over the next 90 minutes, there was a flurry of activity. Lifeboats continued to be filled. Third class passengers continued to be locked below. And the ship began to ever so slowly tilt forward. At 2.20... Two hours and 40 minutes after it struck the iceberg, the Titanic disappeared under the water. Now here's a side note. When I get into the discussion of the film, I'm going to spend a little more time talking about what happened while the ship was sinking. For those in the lifeboats that watched the Titanic disappear beneath the surface, the next sound that they would hear would be the more than 1,000 people still alive in the water. Those in the lifeboats didn't attempt to rescue anyone in the water due to the fear that their boats would be capsized. Twenty minutes after the ship sank, the screams of those in the water stopped. By 3 a.m., the Carpathia was closing in on the last known location of the Titanic. The ship began to fire rocket flares into the air to let survivors know that they were close by. At 3.35 a.m., the Carpathia made it to the location and began to collect survivors. 705 people were rescued, with three dying on board the Carpathia. After a few hours, the Carpathia began steaming towards New York. Other ships that had heard the distress call from the Titanic arrived on the scene and continued to search for survivors. The next morning, conflicting accounts of what happened began to surface in print media. The New York Times had reported only that the Titanic had struck an iceberg and that the fate of the passengers and crew was unknown. Later that day, reports began to surface that all were safe and that the ship was being towed to Halifax. White Star began flooding news organizations with this news. For those in Southampton, where almost 700 of its townspeople were on the ship, that news was met with cheers and celebration. At 2 p.m., Bruce Ishmay issued a statement from the Carpathian's wireless system. It read, quote, Deeply regret, advise you. Titanic sank this morning after a collision with Iceberg, resulting in serious loss of life. Full particulars later, Bruce Ishmay. end quote. On Wednesday, April 17th, White Star charted a ship out of Halifax to go to the last known position of the Titanic and collect as many bodies as possible.
6: While Titanic's 705 survivors were en route to New York, White Star Line sent the cable ship Mackie Bennett out from Halifax, Nova Scotia. It was loaded with ice and empty coffins, and its mission was to look for human remains. Although there had not been enough lifeboats for everyone on board Titanic, there had been no shortage of life belts. They kept people afloat, even after death. The bodies Mackie Bennett found were floating vertically, as if standing, and looked as if they were asleep. The bodies were hauled out of the sea and placed on the foredeck. Each corpse was checked for identification, and then either embalmed or, if it had decomposed too much for embalming, buried at sea. All of the identified bodies of first-class passengers were carried back to shore. Weights were attached to the 116 other bodies, which were then buried at sea. Autopsy showed that almost all of the victims had died of exposure to the cold water rather than drowning, a log of the dead was created to catalogue the items found on the victims' bodies. Among the bodies that were recovered was that of the most famous of Titanic's victims, John Jacob Astor. His corpse was crushed and covered with soot. As a result, it was assumed that Titanic's forward funnel had collapsed on top of him. In his pockets were his watch, stopped at 2:20, and $2,500 in cash. Mackie Bennett returned to Halifax with its gruesome cargo. There, a morgue was set up in an ice rink. Other ships followed, but each brought back fewer and fewer human remains. Wind and bad weather were scattering the bodies, making them difficult to locate. Finally, after only 306 bodies had been found, the organized search was abandoned. In addition to bodies, a deck chair and pieces of oak woodwork were found floating in the water.
0: 328 were recovered. 119 of them were buried at sea. 209 were brought to Halifax, with 150 buried in three different cemeteries. To this day, 128 of those have yet to be identified. They simply have numbers on their headstones. In the following weeks and months, several hearings were established in both America and Britain. The captain and crew of the Carpathia were honored for their actions that saved more than 600 people. The captain and crew of another ship in the area, the Californian, which failed to follow proper maritime regulations regarding the use of their wireless system, which was turned off, was heavily condemned. It would later be learned that the California was close enough to the Titanic that many believed that if their wireless system had been on, they would have made it in time to rescue most on board. After the tragedy, the Titanic's sister ships, the Olympic and the Gigantic, which was now named the Britannica, were promptly refitted with 64 lifeboats and reinforced hulls. For Bruce Ishmael, the chairman of White Star Line, he would be branded a coward by the majority of the public, many of whom thought that he should have gone down with the ship. He resigned from White Star less than a year after the disaster and was rarely seen in public again. And what do you know of what happened with his journey?
3: Well, being an Ismay, I know an awful lot. Uh, A lot of publications say that my particular branch of the family is the nearest branch to... Thomas Henry and Bruce Ismay, with the same surname. Uh, We know he was chairman of the White Star Line at the time. We know he used to go, if he could, on all his ship's maiden voyages. Titanic was no exception. Uh, He was on board. He did a lot of uh, of work with the designers in making it one of the most cutting-edge ships of its time. Um, leading technology with radio and uh, watertight compartments, uh, which were, you know, pretty unknown at the time, or pretty rare at the time. We know um, he, he designed an awful lot of the interiors, or if not designed them, he oversaw the design of it all, or a lot of it, being the chairman. Uh, he unfortunately, or fortunately, was on board that fateful uh, day in April 1912 when it did hit an iceberg and instead of just damaging one of the water compartments it ruptured an awful lot of them and the ship foundered and ultimately sunk I know of course that uh, there's lots of terrible things leveled at him which in my view are totally unfair uh, this was borne out by the uh, inquiries, both the American one and the British one, who found him in no way to be blamed for it. Uh, the chairman of the British inquiry even commented and said that certain very unkind remarks had been said about him, and he felt it although it wasn't part of his duty to do so, it was necessary for him to say that uh, if Bruce hadn't have uh, entered that uh, half-empty boat, which he found with Mr Carter... Um, and I've never been able to find this out, but I was told he was related to Jimmy Carter, uh, the uh, President of the United States. Maybe your research should check that um, and got on board uh, as it was being lowered with no one else in the facility. And this was borne out by other people. The barber uh, gave a statement of that effect on the, on the Titanic and other people. All it would have done was meant one more casualty to the casualty list. And he couldn't see that would have served any useful purpose. Uh, And uh, he was just lambooned. This was the chairman. Lots of people saying he was an old man and uh, didn't know what he was doing and didn't run the inquiry properly. Uh, Just as they said terrible things about Bruce, that he dressed up as a woman and uh, disguised himself to get on board, a lifeboat and all sorts of terrible things. And it was one of the last collapsibles, which was half wood and half canvas, when they managed to get off. Uh, and he'd been helping people board lifeboats for a considerable time before um, he managed to get on a lifeboat himself. Uh, I see no blame attached to him at all. And I really, it really upsets me, even to this day, to see books coming out saying terrible things about him. Uh, and they, I think they ought to be ashamed
0: of themselves. The Britannica would be used during World War I as a hospital ship, and in 1916 it struck a sea mine and sank in less than an hour. However, there were plenty of lifeboats on board and only 38 people lost their lives. The Carpathia was sunk by a German U-boat in 1918. In part two, we will look at the search for the wreck of the Titanic, and we will also look at how Hollywood handled telling the story of the Titanic leading up to the 1990s. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.
2: There were only 705 survivors. Few of them, of course, are still alive today, but amongst them is Major Frank Prentice from Bournemouth. Now, Major, you worked in the purser's office of the ship. You were only 18 at the time, and you were in your cabin here in the midships of the Titanic when That's the right. collision occurred. Now, what was the first you knew of the disaster? Well, we came to a sudden stop. That's the first I knew about it. And it was just like jamming your brakes on a car. There was no impact, no great impact. You couldn't feel. It was just a bit of a shudder, and she stopped. Now, when people realised the ship was actually sinking, were the scenes of, of great panic? At the end, there was cha- it was chaotic at the end. What was happening? Well, everybody was crying, praying, trying to get into the few lifeboats that were left. No, it was um, pretty sad at the end. You met a woman, didn't you, and you gave her some advice? Yes. Well, Mrs Clark... And- I got into a lifeboat. She was having trouble getting her life jacket on. So we fixed that for her and told her. And she didn't want to leave her husband. That was the trouble. Half of the women didn't want to leave their husbands. But anyway, we got her. I got into a lifeboat as a precautionary measure. And she said, well, can my husband come with me? I said, no. He'll follow on later on. Well, now, how did you get off yourself? Well, I dropped off the stern just before she sank. So you went right up to the stern There yes, it was quiet up there. Presumably the stern was a long way out of the water by the Well, she was almost vertical when I left her. I was lying, I was hanging onto the board that uh, says keep here propeller blades. But at the very end I was lying on it and then I let go and I just missed the propellers on the way down. How big was the drop? God, I don't know, well over a hundred feet. I believe you've still got the watch you had at the time. Yes, I have. Can we have a look at that? Yes. What time did the ship actually sink? I think she went down about quarter past two. Right, well, here's the watch, and the watch says 20 past two. So um, the watch kept going after you'd hit the water, which presumably was freezing. Yeah, absolutely. Full of ice and bits of ice floes and bergs all around us eventually you managed to get into a lifeboat yes did you meet mrs clark again then? yes i met her and i sat next to her and she wrapped a blanket around me and tried to keep me a bit warm and I was nearly about, a frozen solid what about her husband her husband was drowned what are the myths of the titanic was the band playing nearer my god to yes this? yes did you hear that i heard that i heard that when i went forward the second time put some stewardess into a lifeboat, and I found they didn't know where to go or what to do. And on my way back, I found, I heard the band playing near my god to thee, and them singing. What about this theory that some of the men dressed up as women to get into the lifeboats? I don't know. I didn't see any of that. I know there were a lot of men saved. There were 80 firemen, I think, of about 70-odd stewards. And a lot of men saved. I don't know how they got away, but uh, they didn't swim, because they were only seven picked up. Who do you lived? Who do you blame for this catastrophe? I blame the bridge. I, I, I think a lot of the blame was on Bruce Ismay, the chairman. He was he the was, chairman of the shipping line. He was a chairman of the shipping line, and I am very much afraid he influenced Captain Smith so much that we. We went straight for the ice. There was no question about it. We were absolutely thrown away. That ship was thrown away. Why, though? Why? For the sake of speed. We shouldn't have been anywhere near there because we had warnings that there was ice. and There was ice all over the place. We had it from ships and shore. And we went straight ahead as if there was nothing there in our way. Does the memory of that night still haunt you now? Well, tonight I shall think a lot about it. (laughs) Can't help it, can you? Did you think at any stage you were going to die? I didn't give it a thought when I was on the ship. and I didn't give it a thought when I dropped from the water, but I gave it a long thought when I was on my own and everybody else seemed to be dead round me. And then I thought I was going to die. But I had a life jacket on and I had another one tucked under me in a cushion. And I was just paddling towards where I saw the lifeboats, where I, we sent up uh, rockets from the bridge and I could see where the lifeboats, there were where I was on the poop. I had a very good view. What a dreadful scene uh, that must have been, Major Prentice. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
0: Within days of the wreck, William Alden Smith, a senator from the state of Michigan, convened a committee to look at the cause of the Titanic sinking. The subcommittee assembled at the Waldorf Historia Hotel in New York City on April 19th, just five days after the disaster. The first person called in front of the committee was Bruce Ismay.
7: I will ask you a few preliminary questions. First state your full name, please. Joseph Bruce Ismay. And your place of residence. Liverpool. And your age.
8: I shall be 50 on the 12th of December.
7: And your occupation? Ship owner. Are you an officer of the White Star Line? I am. In what capacity? Managing director. As such an officer, were you officially designated to make the trial trip of the Titanic? No. Were you a voluntary passenger? A voluntary passenger, yes. Will you kindly tell the committee the circumstances surrounding your voyage and as succinctly as possible? Beginning with your going aboard the vessel Liverpool... Your place on the ship on the voyage, together with any circumstances you feel would be helpful to us in this inquiry?
8: In the first place, I would like to express my sincere grief at this deplorable catastrophe. I understand that you gentlemen have been appointed by the Senate to inquire into the circumstances. So far as we are concerned, we welcome it. We court the fullest inquiry. We have nothing to conceal, nothing to hide. The ship was built in Belfast. She was the latest thing in the art of shipbuilding. Absolutely no money was spared in her construction. She was not built by contract. She was simply built on a commission. She underwent her trials, which were entirely satisfactory. She then proceeded to Southampton, arriving there on Wednesday. The accident took place on Sunday night. What the exact time was, I do not know. I was in bed myself, asleep, when the accident happened. The ship sank, I am told, at 2.20. I understand that it has been stated that the ship was going at full speed. The ship never had been at full speed. The full speed of the ship is 78 revolutions. She works up to 80. So far as I'm aware, she never exceeded 75 revolutions. She had not all her boilers on. It was our intention, if we had fine weather on Monday afternoon or Tuesday, to drive the ship at full speed. That, owing to the unfortunate catastrophe, never eventuated.
7: Will you describe what you did after the impact or collision?
8: I presume the impact awakened me. I lay in my bed for a moment or two afterwards, not realizing, probably, what had happened. Eventually, I walked along the passageway and met one of the stewards and said, ''What has happened?'' He said, ''I do not know, sir.'' I then went back into my room, put on my coat, and went up to the bridge, where I found Captain Smith. I asked him what had happened, and he said, ''We have struck ice.'' I said, do you think the ship is seriously damaged? He said, I'm afraid she is. I then went down below, I think it was, where I met Mr. Bell, the chief engineer, who was in the main companionway. I asked if the ship was seriously damaged, and he said he thought she was, but was quite satisfied the pumps would keep her afloat. I think I went back into the bridge. I heard the order to get the boat out. I stood upon the deck practically until I left the ship in the starboard collapsible boat, which is the last boat to leave the ship so far as I know. More than that, I
0: do not know. Throughout Ismay's testimony, he was grilled on the issues regarding the lack of lifeboats, to which he kept deferring to how technologically savvy the boat was. He would continue to go over the design of the ship, talking about the 16 different watertight compartments and how they should have prevented the ship from sinking. One of the strongest statements Ismay issued was that he believed that if the ship had made a head-on collision with the iceberg, that the Titanic would have been in New York Harbor that very day. This allegation was meant to defer blame from the ship's designer to that of the crew and their decision to try to avoid the iceberg. This, of course, would have been difficult for the senior officers and crew members to defend since most of them, including the ship's captain and first officer, perished on the ship. Throughout the line of questioning, Ismay maintained that he did everything he could to assist as many people as possible onto lifeboats, he also stated the deck was clear of people when he entered the last lifeboat. When asked if he watched the Titanic sink below the surface from his lifeboat, he replied he hadn't. His back was facing the ship, and he stated that he was glad he didn't see her go down. The third person called in front of the Senate committee was the highest-ranking officer to survive, 2nd Officer Charles Lightoller who had actually taken the Titanic out on its sea trials. Light Trawler was by all accounts very much in favor of keeping in good standing with Bruce Ismay and White Star. Most of the answers that he gave were vague and somewhat evasive. When he was asked if the ship had conducted lifeboat drills, he stated that the lifeboats were sound and that they had been tested. Light Trawler also had a very interesting answer when pressed about the issue of half-full lifeboats that night. He stated that the shipbuilder Harlan Wolf tested the capacity limits of the boats and certified them at 65 people per boat. Light Troller told the committee that even though the boats could hold 65 people, he didn't believe that the Titanic's rigging used to lower the boats could hold that much weight. Keep in mind, these boats would have to be lowered 70 feet. Light Troller told the committee that with each lifeboat, he would allow more and more people on them effectively conducting the test in a real world situation Lightroller was also able to confirm bruce ismay's statement that there was next to no one on the ship's deck before the last lifeboat was deployed Lightroller was actually on the ship when it plunged into the water he was able to swim to an overturned lifeboat where he along with several others waited for rescue from the carpathia throughout the hearings the The committee would hear from several witnesses, including the ship's fourth officer, that they believed that there was a ship in the immediate vicinity of the Titanic. The ship in question was named the Californian, and its captain and crew would face severe public scrutiny for their actions. Now, the basic story of the Californian is this. It was in the area of the Titanic, saw its distress rockets, and chose not to risk going through an ice field to aid in any rescue attempts. The subject of this incident has been widely covered in many news articles and several books. And it's been really difficult for me to pinpoint the real story. I spent five hours at my local library researching the incident, and I'm going to read a few pages from a fantastic book called 1912 Facts About the Titanic. Now, these pages are going to state the facts as we know it, and then it's going to be left up to you to make up your own mind. Now, to put this in a little bit of context, the Titanic did strike the iceberg at 1140 p.m., On the California at 10.20 p.m., Captain Stanley Lord ordered the engines reversed and let the California drift to a stop just short of a large ice field. The ship was surrounded by icebergs. Captain Lord checked and logged the position of the California at 42.5 north and 50.7 west. The ship was pointed northeast. 10.30 p.m., Captain Lord saw what he looked like a steamer coming up from the east, but 3rd Officer Charles Groves thought it was just a star. 10.45 p.m. Captain Lord pointed out the light, which now appeared to be a steamer coming up from the south and the east to his chief engineer. 10.55 p.m. Captain Lord asked Cyril Evans if he knew of any other ships in the vicinity. When Evans replied that Titanic was the only ship around, Lord told him that the ship he had seen wasn't Titanic. However, Lord told Evans to contact Titanic and tell them about the ice. 11.30 p.m. Now this is 10 minutes before the Titanic struck the iceberg. The other ship was much larger and closer now, and Captain Lord could see the starboard green marker light. He estimated that the ship was only five miles away. Captain Lord asked Groves to watch the ship, and then Lord left the bridge. Groves thought the ship was about the same size as the Californian. Also, it looked as if it had masts, in other words, a sailing vessel possibly steam-powered, 11.35 p.m. Evans shuts down the Marconi wireless system on the California and goes to bed. Now, this is of some interesting note here because typically the bigger ships like the Titanic, they would have two men operating the wireless system, so there would always be someone manning the wireless system 24 hours a day. But on the Californian, because the ship was substantially smaller than the Titanic, they just had one wireless operator, Cyril Evans, and then he shuts it down at 11.35 and goes to bed. 12 a.m., now this is 20 minutes after the Titanic has struck the iceberg. Captain Lords decides to retire and told his replacement second officer, Herbert Stone, to notify him if the other ship directly off the starboard side of the Californian came any closer. Although not underway, the bow of the Californian was now swinging with the current, and the ship was facing almost due east. This put the other ship due south of the Californian. 12:10 a.m., fireman Ernest Gill on the deck after his 8 to midnight watch below saw the lights of a large steamer off the starboard side and about 10 miles away he thought gill went down to his bunk and told his mate that the ship was going full speed Twelve fifteen a.m groves now off duty decided to stop by the wireless room to listen in on some of the messages he wore the headphones for a while heard nothing and then left groves did not know that evans had not rewound the detector now the detector is used it's sort of it's a way of capturing incoming messages but it has to be set and it wasn't set during the 15 minutes between 12.15 and 12.30, Jack Phillips on the Titanic sent a total of 10 distress messages. So what we're seeing here is at 12.15, Groves listened for some messages, didn't find any, and turned it off moments before the Titanic started sending out its distress messages. 12.30 a.m., Ernest Gill went back up on deck for a cigarette about 10 minutes later He saw a white rocket off the starboard side and about 10 miles away thinking it was a shooting star He waited for a while and less than 10 minutes later. He saw another one this time a rocket for sure Later Gill reported it was not my business to notify the bridge. I turned in immediately afterwards He did not hear a rocket explode or any escaping steam either. Now let me explain the escaping steam here because this is something that I did not cover on the last episode. This is also something that's not covered in the 1997 film, which we'll talk about a little later on. When the ship came to a full stop and it was starting to take on water... Measures were ensured to make sure that these boilers did not explode. And what they did was they did a emergency evacuation of all the steam they had. And this caused a ridiculously loud noise for more than 20 minutes. It was so loud that people on the ship couldn't hear each other. This loud noise from the steam forced a lot of people back inside the ship for a good 20-minute period. So this is where it says, the you know, going back to what it says here, where he did not hear a rocket explode or any escaping steam either. That's what that means. When 2nd Officer Stone reported to the bridge, he too saw the steamer. Told to watch its actions by the captain, Stone kept an eye on it and noticed eventually that the red portside light was showing which means it was also facing east, the direction in which it had come. It had turned around. 12.45 a.m., Stone reported a flash in the sky directly over the other ship. He too thought it was a shooting star. Then, a few minutes later, he saw another flash. These were the same flashes that Ernest Gill had seen. Within the next 15 minutes, Stone saw three more flashes. It appeared to Stone that there was another ship between the California and the ship firing the rockets. At 1.15 a.m., Stone notified Captain Lord down in his cabin of the signal rockets he had seen. Asked if they were private signals, Stone told Lord he didn't know, only that they were white. Lord ordered Stone to keep signaling and, quote, When you get an answer, let me know. Stone continued to signal and Captain Lord went back to bed. At 1.50 a.m., by now Stone had seen eight rockets, the last one about one twenty-five. Carpathia was now facing almost west-southwest, and the other ship was still stationary, still with its port-side red light showing. 4.30 a.m., Lord was awakened by the officer of the watch, Chief Officer Stewart. It was still dark out. 5.15 a.m., it was getting light now, and Stewart saw a four-masted ship off to the southwest. Concerned that it might be the one that's in trouble, he told Captain Lord that Stone said he had seen a ship fire rockets during the night. Captain Lord had finally decided that it was safe to navigate through the ice field to the west. He had Cyril Evans, the wireless operator, awakened to check with the ship to find out if it needed any help. At 5.20 a.m., Cyril Evans rewound the detector in the wireless room, turned on his set, sent a request for someone to wire back to him that his transmitter was working. He immediately received a message from the Virginian reporting that the Titanic had sank during the night and its position at the time of sinking. The message was given to Captain Lord, who calculated that the California was about 19 miles away from where the Titanic went down. Captain Lord ordered the ship to steam through the ice field, then turned south towards the disaster site. Once through the ice, the California steamed at full speed, 13.5 knots. 7.30 a.m., the California passed another ship, the Mont Temple, which was stopped in the area that the Titanic had said it struck the iceberg. There wasn't any wreckage, so the California continued south, passed another ship that didn't have a wireless system, and then the Californian sighted the Carpathia on the east. After confirming that the Carpathia was picking up survivors, the last lifeboat was picked up at eight fifty a.m. Captain Lord passed back through the ice field and pulled up alongside just as the Carpathia began its trip to New York. After spending a few hours looking for survivors, Captain Lord ordered the California underway for Boston.
2: Captain Stanley Lord to the stand. Place your right hand on the Bible and repeat after me. I, Stanley Lord. Do solemnly swear... Don't worry, son.
9: I, Stanley Lord... That was more than a match for these stuff shirts. ...that the evidence I give in this inquiry will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Are you the captain of the SS Californian? Yes.
10: On Sunday, April 14th, did you have to stop on account of ice?
9: I had to stop and reverse engines at 10.21pm. What sort of ice was it? Field ice, right ahead of me.
10: Now, close upon 11 o'clock on Sunday night, you saw a steamer's light.
9: It was approaching me from the eastward on the starboard side. She was heading to the westward.
10: Did you then ask your wireless operator what ships he heard? Yes.
9: And he said nothing. Only the Titanic. Did you think that the vessel approaching you was the Titanic? No. I remarked at the time that she was not the Titanic. How could you tell that? It's difficult to mistake those ships... By the blaze of light. About what
10: distance, approximately, did you consider she was from you?
9: I suppose she was six or seven miles away. Were there any other officers on deck? Yes. Mr. Groves, the third officer, was on deck until twelve. And then at twelve, the second officer, Mr.
10: Stone, relieved the third officer.
9: At ten past twelve. And
10: did you tell him anything with regard to this vessel?
9: I told him to watch that steamer, that she had stopped, and then I went to my chart room at a quarter past twelve. I told Mr. Stone I was going to lie down.
10: A little later, did he whistle down the tube and tell you whether he had seen any signal? He said he had seen a white rocket. From her? From her. Did you see it? No. Is it the fact that this vessel from which the rocket appeared was at the time... In the position which, probably, the Titanic was. no. What is in my brain at the present time is this. That what they saw was the Titanic. (laughs) That is in my brain. And I want to see whether I'm right or not. Clear it up if you can. Can you tell us whether you saw one
9: or two masthead lights? I only saw one. You only saw one? and The third officer, Mr. Grove, said he saw two. Now that is important. That is very
10: important, because the Titanic would have two. If Mr. Groves did see two lights, it must have been the Titanic, must it not? It does not follow. Do you know of any other vessel it might have been? No, I do not know. Has Mr. Groves ever expressed any opinion to you that it was the Titanic he saw?
9: No, my lord. Never, never.
10: Did he say to you that she was evidently a passenger steamer? No. And did you say to him the only passenger steamer near us is the Titanic?
9: I might have said
10: that. Do collect your
9: mind. Did you say it? I don't recollect saying it. You do not give answers that please me at present.
10: Do you now suggest that you do not remember whether you said
9: it or not? I don't recollect saying anything at all to him that night, my lord. I have heard so many stories about the Titanic after she went down that I honestly don't remember what I heard that night.
10: Do you know of any other passenger steamer near you except the Titanic?
9: I did not. But you knew the Titanic was not far from you. I had no idea where the Titanic was.
0: On the face of it, it doesn't look like Captain Lord or his crew did anything wrong. At least, that is what Lord would always say. And he might be right. There was, however, three major things that transpired that his detractors used against him. And Captain Lord had an answer for each one of them. Number one, the wireless system was shut down for the night. This is correct. And it's also not an issue. Only a very few ships, large ones such as the Titanic and the Olympic, had more than one wireless operator. There was no U.S. or international laws that required more especially since the purpose of the wireless was for the use of passengers to send and receive messages. With only one operator, there was going to be times when the system wasn't working. The fact that Evans went to sleep or that he didn't rewind the detector does not have any bearing on this issue. He was following the accepted procedures of the time. Number 2. Neither Captain Lord or the rest of the officers responded to the rockets fired by the crew of the Titanic. This also happened, and Lord could argue this position too. You see, many ships in 1912 weren't equipped with wireless systems and had unusual methods of communication between them at night, as had been the case for well over 100 years. Many of these communication forms were the use of rockets, especially white rockets. In fact, the British Board of Trade Regulations, in effect at the time, stipulated that whaling vessels, which often worked in fleets, were to use white rockets to communicate why white because intracompany communications such as from one White Star ship to another White Star ship, were supposed to use colored rockets to communicate. There were no British Board of Trade regulations that rockets were to be used for signal distress. Also, the California was in a known whaling area and had seen several whaling vessels that day. The white rockets could very well have been whaling ships communicating with each other. In the third issue, Captain Lord slept through the night while the Titanic sank a few miles away. And the book says, so the guy was tired. His ship was stopped by an ice field. He had a competent set of officers on watch, and the only other ship in the vicinity appeared to be stopped in the ice field, too. It was all rather routine. When the committee was finished, much to the disappointment, they found that no maritime laws had been broken, and the only thing that was going to come out of these hearings was sweeping changes. Immediately following the sinking of the Titanic, it became maritime international law that there be enough lifeboats for everyone on board of the ship. The public wanted a villain, and most were happy to point the finger of blame at Captain Stanley Lord and his crew— For their apparent lack of action but the reality was that the real villain was man's ego the certainty that the titanic would not sink was what doomed those on board the ship the decision to take away lifeboats because they took up too much space on the deck the ego of man believing that they could conquer mother nature is something unfortunately that still happens to this day let's take a look at the timeline of titanic films in 1929 a british film called atlantic was released in both English and German language versions. The film was a work of fiction loosely based on the events of the Titanic. A ship called the Atlantic hits an iceberg on a voyage to New York. Even though this wasn't technically the first film about the Titanic, Dorothy Gibson, a Titanic survivor, appeared in a silent film called Save the Titanic that was released 29 days after the sinking of the Titanic. The Atlantic is notable on this list because it was the first film with sound. To tackle the subject of the Titanic.
5: If you still love your wife and daughter, you'd better get them to the boats without delay. Why? The ship's quite safe, oh, isn't it? Yes. For a couple of hours.
4: You must get your wife into the boat as soon as possible. Of course, that's what I tell her. I can't make her. You must make her. If you would save
11: her life.
0: Good God. Now, the Atlantic was a huge hit in Europe and was extremely well received in Germany. Keep in mind, this was 1929. And relations between Britain and Germany were pretty solid back then. This of course would all change in the following decade, and by 1943, the world was at war and Germany and Britain were bitter enemies. In 1943, the German Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, a man who was obsessed with film, commissioned a new movie to be made about the Titanic. This film would be drastically different, not only from the popular film The Atlantic, but but also would change many of the facts surrounding what happened that night. The film was released at the height of World War II and sees the British as being grossly incompetent on board the ship. Amazingly, in this movie, there's a lone German officer who ends up being the hero responsible for saving hundreds of lives. The film was only initially released in Germany. These days, you can find it on YouTube with subtitles. In 1953, the first American-made film to cover the disaster was released. The film, simply called Titanic, starred Clifton Webb and Barbara Stanwyck as an estranged couple who book last-minute passage on board the Doom vessel.
7: Four decades have passed since the Titanic screamed across the headlines of the world. Yet no human drama has eclipsed its staggering impact and overwhelming power. Now, for the first time, the screen brings you the strange events, the monumental story of those four never-to-be-forgotten days. Unforgettable drama in scene after scene, an immense canvas on which is thrown the gripping story of young love, of cowardice and heroism, of faithfulness and adultery, of sinner and saint.
4: And if you try to interfere, I'll be as common as you think I am. I'll fight you tooth and nail. I'll take you to the courts. No court in the world, no power under heaven can force me to give up my son.
12: He is not your son.
4: Thank you for not mentioning my strange luggage. How do you cover that in ten
5: easy words in a wireless to a family that loved you and sacrificed for you?
7: Tear my blanket, make my feathers fly. Wild me, twirl me, twirl me, twirl me to that nav,
4: all right.
5: The widener maid. I'm looking for the widener maid.
2: Well, don't look at me. I got so many maids, some of the maids are taking care of the maids.
0: This movie is notable for being the first film to allege that Captain Smith was coaxed by white star executives to try to make the crossing as fast as possible and sacrificing safety. Made with an almost unheard of budget at the time of $1.8 million, the film released on April 16, 1953 took in a little over $2.2 million. In 1955, the most definitive book written on the Titanic was published, A Night to Remember. It was written by Walter Lord. In 1919, as a child, Lord had traveled on Titanic's sister ship, the Olympic. After graduating from Princeton, Lord began writing in his spare time.
11: I wish I knew how my interest in the Titanic began. I really have no idea. I just have always been interested in it. I think uh, when I was nine years old, I was interested in the Titanic. Uh, I think perhaps it has something to do with the way little boys catch cold. Nobody knows how they do it. They just do. I think the same thing with my interest in the Titanic. I had finished a book on our Civil War, and uh, I was looking for another project. I thought perhaps about the Civil War again. And my editor, who was a chap I'd worked with in OSS in London, said, uh, again, you were always talking about the Titanic, why don't you write a book about it? So I began doing it, but I'd done most of the research just to satisfy my own curiosity. And I went to Princeton. Other people went to the library to study the classics or French or something. that I went to the library to look at the old newspapers on the Titanic. I also found the hearings there, the American hearings. And that's a, such a wonderful, uh, unexplored treasury of material on the ship that I gobbled that up too while I was at it. And then I was pretty much ready to write about the, the subject whenever, it, whenever it happened. I was ready without knowing it. I uh, worked out my outline of my book, chapter by chapter. I then wrote a draft, and then uh, the time my editor felt that that was the time to get in touch with the survivors, when I knew as much as I was ever going to know without them. And so I then I began a sort of blitzkrieg of getting in touch with survivors. And it was difficult in a way, because there was no Survivors Association at the time, there was no Titanic club, there was no Titanic uh, interest really. Nothing had been written on it for 40 years, not since 1913. And so it was a challenge just to find them. And I didn't have much money. I worked in the advertising business at the time as a writer. Uh, So uh, my solution was to write letters to the editor and ask editors of various newspapers to place these letters in their letters column. And I tried to pick the cities where there might be most survivors from what I knew, for instance, Chicago was a place where a lot of them were going, who were going to settle in the middle west of our country. New York was an obvious place. Some of the most prominent came from Philadelphia, so that was another place. Then there were the Belfast papers, of course. She was built in Belfast, and then there were the London papers, the British papers, and then of course the Southampton Echo and those coastal t- papers. All I sent barrels of these letters out, each of them of them uh, informal and personal, not just a form, form of mimeographed letter. I sent them a personal letter to the editor and asked them whether they would run it. an amazing number did. Uh, And then the survivors, the letters said to get in touch with me at my New York address, and then they began writing in. And then of course, once you got a few of them, they would lead to others. And in the end I had over 60, 64 I think. But that was the way it was done, and uh, on a very low budget of just a number of postage stamps, I managed to
0: get in a very rich harvest of Titanic survivors. A Night to Remember was only his second published novel. Lord interviewed 63 survivors of the Titanic and was able to put together the most comprehensive timeline of the events of that night in April of 1912. Interestingly enough, his book was the first to mention that the band continued playing music while the ship was sinking. Lord would go on to write several other books on many different subjects, but will always be remembered most for his work on the Titanic. After Lord died in 2002, he bequeathed to the National Maritime Museum in England his huge collection of manuscripts, original letters, and Titanic memorabilia, which he had gathered during his life and used to write A Night to Remember. The book was adapted into a 1958 British film of the same name. A Night to Remember gave audiences the First, accurate portrayal of what happened to the passengers after the iceberg struck. Survivors of the Titanic were in attendance when the film had its worldwide premiere in London in 1958. They applauded the filmmakers for their accuracy. The film did have a few inaccuracies, though, I will point out, including the depiction of the ship being christened. In reality, this never happened, and some have suggested this created a curse on the Titanic. The other glaring inaccuracy that wouldn't be discovered until 1985 was that in the film, the ship sinks in one piece. Now, many believe that once the Titanic was eventually discovered, that they would somehow be able to raise it from the depths. And that leads us to our next film, a film that tackled that very subject. 1980 saw the release of Raise the Titanic, a film starring Jason Roberts and Sir Alec Guinness. And as the title describes, in the film, they do just that. (laughs)
2: What a lovely thing she was, standing as high in the water as one of your skyscrapers. And God himself, they said, couldn't sink her. Then in two hours, she was gone, and 1,500 souls with her. Control, this is Deep Quest at 8,000 feet. Negative contacts.
7: This is Turtle. No contacts,
13: no.
7: I think we hit the jackpot. It's at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. You're talking about 12,500 feet underwater. Which leaves us with only one choice? Are you talking about raising the Titanic? Yeah.
3: It's the biggest job with the highest stakes anybody ever dreamt of. I took this job on two conditions. One, that I handle a salvage end of it my way, and two, that you stay out of my hair. I'm going to crush the deep question.
13: Indicates electrical fire on the left.
7: If we can't cut loose that submersible, we got to bring up the Titanic. Our target date's two weeks away.
0: Our target date just got changed. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, six five. Mark. The reason is that both scientists and military advisors believe that the ship contains some type of valuable mineral thought to no longer be found on Earth, the military has a plan to weaponize this mineral, and so on and so on, and the movie came out during the height of the Cold War, so there's a lot of Cold War propaganda in the film, and it's pretty much ridiculous, but I will concede that the ending, and spoiler alert, when they actually raise the Titanic, is pretty fun to watch. In 1977, when Canadian-born James Cameron walked out of a movie theater in Los Angeles after just seeing George Lucas's space opera Star Wars, he knew his life would never be the same. It was that single moment that propelled Cameron into a career of filmmaking. After working as a set builder for Roger Corman's New World Pictures, Cameron was given the opportunity to direct his first feature film, Piranha 2 The Spawning. The filming didn't go as planned and Cameron found himself fired shortly after the production got started. While he was in Italy attempting to meet with the producers of Piranha 2, he got food poisoning and suffered some very vivid nightmares. In one of those dreams, he was being chased by a killer robot. This dream served as the initial inspiration for his second feature film, The Terminator. Cameron followed up the success of that film with his third film, Aliens, a hugely successful sequel to Ridley Scott's 1979 horror classic, Alien. Cameron's fourth film was the underwater thriller, The Abyss, a $70 million movie that was met with critical success, but had only a modest return at the box office. The Abyss has become infamous for its behind-the-scenes antics. Cameron was beginning to garner a reputation of not only being a hands-on director, see, he was extremely fluent in all aspects of filmmaking, but also working long days and pushing the actors and crew to their physical and mental limits. Two years after The Abyss, Cameron's fifth film, Terminator 2 Judgment Day was not only the most expensive movie ever made, but also became the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. Side note, Terminator 2 was the first R-rated film I saw in the theaters. Thanks, Dad. Now, after the success of Terminator 2, Cameron was pondering what his next film would be, and in 1992, he rewatched A Night to Remember, the 1958 classic tale of the ill-fated passenger liner, The Titanic. Cameron had always been fascinated with the story of the doomed voyage across the North Atlantic. Just a few weeks after he rewatched the film, he attended a premiere screening of the documentary Titanic Treasurers of the Deep, a documentary film made by Cameron's underwater cinematographer on the abyss, Al Giddings. Cameron sat in awe. When the screening was over, Cameron approached Giddings and told him that he wants his next film to be about the Titanic. He followed up that statement by saying his first order of business was to make an actual dive down to the Titanic something that would have been impossible only seven years earlier. Robert Ballard was born June thirtieth, 1942, in Wichita, Kansas. While he was still a child, his family relocated to San Diego, California. Ballard was immediately drawn to the ocean and would spend as much time as possible on the many beaches in the San Diego area. Robert Ballard's favorite book growing up was Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and he was determined, even at a very young age, to become an oceanographer. In 1965, Ballard graduated from UC Santa Barbara with a degree in chemistry and geology. While he was attending college, he also was involved in the Army ROTC program, which earned him a commission in the Army Intelligence Reserve program. In 1967, he was called to active duty and did spend some time in Vietnam. Ballard requested a transfer from the Army to the Navy. And it was while in the Navy that he was assigned to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts. His job was a liaison between the Navy and the Institute. Ballard continued his education, receiving his PhD in marine geology and geophysics. Ballard would spend the 1970s making numerous ocean dives around the world. And in the early 1980s, Ballard helped to develop a remote operating vehicle, or ROV, named Argo. Essentially, Argo was an underwater sled that could be towed from a ship on the surface. Argo had forward and side looking underwater cameras that could scan the ocean floor. It could also reach depths of 20,000 feet, which meant that it was possible to scan 98% of the ocean floor. Ballard was convinced that Argo could be used to help locate the Titanic. However, an expedition to search for the Titanic would have cost millions, and securing that kind of funding based solely on a hunch was damn near impossible. In 1982, Ballard approached the Navy about possibly funding an expedition. The Navy really wasn't interested in supporting a search for the Titanic. They were, however, interested in Argo and the practical uses the ROV might have for official Navy business. In a surprise move, the Navy made Ballard proposition. If he was willing to help them survey... Two nuclear submarines that were lost in the North Atlantic in the early 1960s. The Navy really wanted to know the condition of the subs were in. I mean, they they were nuclear subs, they had nuclear reactors, and they wanted to know if they were still intact. If he was willing to do that, then they would be willing to fund his expedition to search for the Titanic. Ballard jumped at the opportunity, but there was a catch. Ballard wasn't allowed to tell anyone that he was surveying these submarines. That part of the mission was classified. To the public, this was a 100% a search for the Titanic. However, Ballard wouldn't be able to begin his Titanic search until after he surveyed the submarines. In 1984, Ballard and his team used the Argo first at the wreck of the USS Thresher. Then the following year, he and his crew surveyed the USS Scorpion. It was discovered that both ships had simply imploded into thousands of pieces, and nothing more than postcard-sized pieces were left. In the 1984 expedition, Ballard failed to find the Titanic. In his 85 expedition, with just days left, a breakthrough.
13: Using sophisticated robot cameras and the latest sonar equipment, the research vessel found the Titanic at a depth of 13,000 feet. And these pictures prove conclusively, after years of false hopes, that it is the Titanic the ship once described as unsinkable. They show one of the ship's huge boilers. The stoking doors become distinguishable when enhanced by computer. This archive photograph from the Harland and Wolf shipyard clinches it. It shows the Titanic's boilers and at the bottom those same doors. It's thought the heavy boilers broke loose and ripped through the relatively thin plates of the hull as the liner dived to the seabed. The research team has now sent down colour cameras which should soon provide clearer pictures of the wreck. But they say they have no plans to raise the liner or to explore for its fabled riches. And that promise delighted Titanic survivor Eva Hart, today seeing the ship again for the first time in 73 years.
3: I've said for so long and and meant it so sincerely that I hoped they wouldn't raise her because I feel that's my father's grave the grave of 1500 people and I'm so glad they don't anticipate doing that
13: at two and a half miles down the icy water should have helped to preserve the Titanic but it's beyond the reach of all but remote vehicles 600 feet is the normal limit for a deep-sea diver so could the great liner ever be raised
2: it's impossible even at that depth After 70 years, that hull will have no strength at all. It couldn't stand any kind of lifting, and
14: it's a scrapyard.
13: And so the Titanic will never complete her maiden voyage. And there could be another disappointment for anyone hoping to scoop up her legendary riches from the seabed. According to the diamond company De Beers, that long-accepted story of the ship carrying 100 million pounds worth of diamonds just isn't true.
0: Ballard would go on to discover the Bismarck, the Lusitania, the Yorktown, and JFK's PT-109 boat throughout his career. In 1992, James Cameron traveled to Russia with Al Giddings. They toured the world's largest research ship, the Kletchi. This was a ship that Giddings traveled on to make his documentary film about the Titanic. While there, the two talked about the logistics of filming the wreck for a possible feature film. Cameron would return to America, full of possibilities and ideas, but it would be four more years before he would finally approach the studios about making his Titanic film. In the meantime, Cameron got to work on his sixth film, the spy comedy True Lies, released in 1994. In early 1995, Cameron pitched his story to 20th Century Fox. He explained that he wanted to make Romeo and Juliet on the Titanic. The execs at 20th Century Fox were intrigued and gave the initial green light before the script was even written. For Cameron, the first order of business was to dive to the wreck. He explained to the executives that whether or not he used real footage of the wreck or whether or not he used special effects, it was paramount that he at least got to film the wreck for authenticity purposes. Fox gave Cameron a pre-production $4 million diving budget. And in September of 1995... Cameron made his first dive to the Titanic. The journey to the site took 14 hours round trip. Cameron would make 12 more dives in total... And all the footage that he used in the movie was real, and it was shot by Cameron himself. After James Cameron returned to the United States, he began the painstaking process of writing the script. His Romeo and Juliet-style love story was to be a fictitious one set in a factual historic event. Cameron logged hundreds of research hours while working on the script. Even though his protagonists were not based on real people... Cameron made sure that every other aspect of the film was as accurate as possible. Now, even though the main set piece for the film was going to be the sinking of the Titanic, in fact, the entire third act of the film takes place during the two hours and 20 minutes after the ship struck the iceberg, Cameron knew that his cast had to be right. He turned to his trusted casting director, Miley Finn. For the role of Rose, Finn suggested Kate Winslet, a British actress with with a, with a few notable acting credits under her belt. After the first screen test, Cameron knew he had found his rose. For the role of Jack Dawson, 20th Century Fox pushed hard for Matthew McConaughey. Cameron was intrigued by then-22-year-old Leonardo DiCaprio. After the two met, Cameron arranged a screen test between Winslet and DiCaprio. For their roles, Winslet was paid $1 million and DiCaprio 2500000 million.
12: Don't do it. Stay back. Don't come any closer. Come on. Just give me your hand, I'll pull you back over.
7: No,
4: stay where you are. I mean it. I'll let go. No, you won't. What do you mean, no, I won't? Don't presume to tell me what I will and will not do. You don't know me.
12: Well, you would have done it already.
15: You're distracting me! Go away!
12: I can't. I'm involved now. You let go and I'm I'm gonna have to jump in there after you. Don't be absurd. You'll be killed. I'm a good swimmer. The fall alone would kill you. It would hurt. I'm not saying it wouldn't. I'll tell you the truth, I'm a lot more concerned about that water being so cold. How cold? Freezing. Maybe a couple degrees over. You ever, uh, ever been to Wisconsin? What? Well, they have some of the coldest winters around. I grew up there near Chippewa Falls. I remember when I was a kid, me and my father, we went ice fishing out on Lake Wissota. Ice fishing is, you know where you. I
13: know what ice fishing is!
12: <sighs> Sorry. You just seem like, you know, kind of an indoor girl. Anyway, I, uh. I fell through some thin ice. And I'm telling you water that cold, like right down there, it hits you like a thousand knives, stabbing you all over your body. Can't breathe, can't think. At least, not about anything but the pain. Which is why I'm not looking forward to jumping in there after you. Like I said, I don't have a choice. I guess I'm kind of hoping you'll come back over the rail and, and get me off the hook here. You're crazy! That's what everybody says, but with all due respect, miss, I'm not the one hanging off the back of the ship here. Come on. Come on, give me your hand. You don't want to do this.
0: (gasps) For the role of the main antagonist, Calden Hockley, Cameron's first choice was Billy Zane. Zane was more of a TV actor at the time, with roles in everything from Matlock to Murder, She Wrote. He had a couple movies under his belt. He was part of Biff Tannen's crew in the Back to the Future trilogy. I
6: had hoped you would come to me last night. I was tired.
10: Your exertions below decks were no doubt exhausting.
4: I see you had that undertaker of a manservant follow me. How typical.
10: You will never behave like that again, Rose. Do you understand?
1: I'm not a foreman in one of your mills that you can command. I'm your fiance. My
6: fiance,
7: my, f- my fiance. Yes, you are, and I- my
6: wife in practice, if not yet by law. So you will honor me. <laughs> you will honor me the way a wife is required to honor a husband, because I will not be made out of fool, Rose. Is this in any way unclear?
1: No.
10: Good. Excuse
0: me.: Now for the role of the elder Rose, Cameron cast Gloria Stewart, an actress who got her start way back in 1932 in the film "The All-American." She would continue to act in films throughout the decades, taking a 12-year hiatus before accepting the role on Titanic.
13: Oh. I'm taking her to
12: rest. No. Come on, Nana. No.
14: Tell us, Rose.
12: It's been 84 years. It's okay. Just try to remember anything, anything at all. Do you want to hear this or not, Mr. Lovett? It's been 84 years. And I can still smell the fresh paint. The china had never been used. The sheets had never been slept in. Titanic was called the ship of dreams. And it was. It really was.
0: Australian actor Jonathan Hyde was cast in the role of White Star chairman Bruce Ismay.
6: She is the largest moving object ever made by the hand of man in all history. And our master shipbuilder, Mr. Andrews here, designed her from the keel plates up. Well,
8: I
11: may have knocked her together, but the idea was Mr. Ismay's. He envisioned a steamer so grand and scale, and so luxurious in its appointments that its supremacy would never be challenged. And here she is, willed into solid reality. Oh, oh, oh.
10: Here, here. Who oh, oh. did they have at The
13: cell. You know, I don't like that rose. There you go.
6: She knows. And for you, sir? We'll both have the lamb. Rare, with very little mint sauce, eh? You like lamb, right, sweet pea?
1: With
12: sausage. You gonna cut her meat for two there, Cal? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, who thought of the name Titanic? Was it you, Bruce?
6: Well, yes, actually. (laughs) I wanted to convey sheer size. And size means stability luxury and above all strength
4: do you know of dr freud mr ismay his ideas
7: about the male preoccupation with size might be of particular interest to you
13: what's gotten into to you excuse
5: me i do apologize she's a pistol cow hope you can handle her
6: well i may have to start minding what she reads from now on won't i mrs brown freud who is he it a passenger?
0: Bernard Hill was cast in the role of Captain Edward James Smith, and Kathy Bates and longtime Cameron regular Bill Paxton rounded out the rest of the principal cast members. By the spring of 1996, Fox was ready to fully greenlight the production. They allocated a $110 million budget, which came with many, many conditions. A summer 1997 release, a guarantee of a PG-13 rating. Now keep in mind... James Cameron was notoriously violent in a lot of his films. I mean, we're talking about Aliens, Terminator, Terminator 2... These are hard R-rated films, and Cameron would have to give up the majority of his director's upfront fee in return for back-end profits. And in a move that 20th Century Fox would later regret, they decided that they wanted to bring on another studio to help share the costs, or as they saw it, the risks associated with this massive film. Paramount Pictures came on board and secured the domestic distribution rights, meaning U.S. and Canada, while 20th Century Fox held on to the worldwide international distribution rights. Now, given the scale of the production, it quickly became clear that there wasn't a current facility big enough to handle the size of the sets that would be needed. Cameron intended to build a full-size replica of the Titanic. The production would also need a number of sound stages and water tanks. The decision was made to build a brand new facility, and in summer 1996, construction began on a new film studio in the Baja Peninsula of Mexico. Built in just 100 days, the new studio had five sound stages, the world's largest in- and outdoor filming tanks, and the world's largest sound stage. Crews worked around the clock on a 10-story, 775-foot-long scale model of the Titanic. And this wasn't just for exterior shots. The inside of this model was 100% accurate. Everything from the grand staircase to the numerous staterooms and a full mock-up of the bridge. Everything was accurate, from the color of the carpets to the designs of the artwork to the china used in the film. The new studio truly was a sight to see. It was so impressive, in fact, that when the current Mexican lease owner saw what was being built, they demanded that 20th Century Fox buy the land instead of leasing it. Fox executives were backed into a wall and had no choice but to purchase the land. The $110 million budget was almost all but gone, and filming wasn't even finished. With Paramount Studios maxing out at $65 million, it was up to 20th Century Fox to shoulder and handle the rest of the inflated budget. Now keep this in mind, this production wasn't shrouded in mystery. The media was well aware that Cameron was going over budget. The total production time was slated for 135 days. That number jumped to 165 days. And many in the media were already calling this the biggest disaster of all time. And the movie hadn't even come out yet. A lot of people were just under the assumption that there was no way that Titanic could ever recoup the amount of money that was being spent. One thing that was becoming abundantly clear was that the release date of July 1997 wasn't going to happen, and the film's release date was officially moved to December 1997. Now, once filming wrapped, all kinds of horror stories started to leak out. Rumors were abound that there had been trouble on the set. Reportedly, Leonardo DiCaprio was such a prima donna that at times he refused to go into the water tanks unless they were at a specific temperature. While the crew was filming the modern day scenes in Halifax, Nova Scotia, a disgruntled union worker dumped one pound of PCP into a bowl of mussel and clam chowder that the cast and crew had been eating in craft services, sending 75, including James Cameron, to the hospital. And of course, there was always these stories about how many on the production crew were always fighting with James Cameron because his demands were always to work past the union mandated work, day. Cameron ended up replacing his director of photography midway through the production. I mean, it was just looking like it was going to be a complete nightmare. Now, to handle the film's score, Cameron enlisted James Horner, a composer who he had worked with on Aliens. Horner had been having issues finalizing the score. The music that he had written for the film encompassed all the tones and emotions, but he didn't have a piece that he thought would fit the end credit scenes. Horner secretly met with singer Celine Dion and the two recorded the single My Heart Will Go On James Horner recalled that he waited weeks to play the song for Cameron, stating that he was waiting till he thought Cameron was in a decent mood. Apparently, this was a really rare thing. When Horner played the song, he didn't even tell Cameron who was singing it. Of course, Cameron loved it, and the rest is history. On December 19th, 1997, Titanic was released in the theater and was met with very strong reviews from both critics and moviegoers.
12: Ship of dreams. And it was. It really was. All right. Open your eyes.
5: <sighs> we go full ahead. Put your back's into it.
12: I've got everything I need right here with me. I figure life's a gift and I don't intend on wasting it. You never know what hand you're going to get dealt next. You'll learn to take life as it comes at you.
5: When the ship docks, I'm getting off with you.
0: The film took in $28 million that weekend, a respectable number for any film, but the following weekend it took in more. And the weekend after that, even more. Titanic was truly an anomaly for a film about the sinking of the ship. The movie didn't just stay afloat at the box office, it was riding high on a wave. And when the dust finally settled, Titanic became the highest grossing film of all time, taking in a little over $1.8 billion. And yes, in case you're wondering, Cameron did receive one hell of a back-end check, Even with Titanic becoming the highest-grossing film of all time, there was still one more record the film had to take on. And in late January of 1998, Titanic was nominated for 14 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director.
15: Thank you. Well, and finally, it all comes down to this. The Best Picture. And the nominees are, as good as it gets... James L. Brooks, Bridget Johnson, Christy Zia, the producers. (laughs) The Full Monte. Uberto Pasolini, producer. Goodwill Hunting. Lawrence Bender, producer. LA Confidential. Alan Milson, Tristan curtis Hansen, and Michael Nathanson, producers. Titanic, James Cameron, and John Landau, producers. And the Oscar goes to... Titanic... This is James Cameron's third Academy Award of the evening, and the first for John Landau.
16: Uh, He thanked everybody and did everything I was going to say, and my eyes are still sort of doing pinwheels from the last one, so I just want to say a couple of things. We're here tonight to celebrate the magic of movies, and I'm grateful every day to get to be a part of that magic and a practitioner in it, and, and I love it. And tonight has been such a great celebration for us, and it seems to somehow express this strange wave that's happened with, with Titanic where people all over the world have, have opened their hearts to this movie, and that's so gratifying to, to, to all of us that, that worked on it, and we'll be forever forever grateful to them, the audience, and I know a lot of you are, are watching at home. In the midst of all this euphoria, it's... Um, it's kind of hard for us to remember that, that this euphoria and the success is for a film that's based on a real event that happened where real people died that shocked the world in, in 1912. So I'd just like everybody to go with me just for a second on, on something here. I'd like, to, I'd like to do a few seconds of silence in remembrance of the 1,500 men, women, and children who died when the great ship died. And uh, the, the message of Titanic, of course, is that if the great ship can sink, the, un- the unthinkable can happen. The future is unknowable. The only thing that we truly own is today. Life is precious. So during these few seconds, I'd like you to also listen to the beating of your own heart, which is the most precious thing in the world. Join me, please, in a few seconds of silence for Titanic. Thank you very much. That's about as much as I'm sure Cates can stand. All right. You've really made this a night to remember in every way. Now let's go party till dawn.
0: Titanic would win 11 Oscars. In the aftermath of the movie, the Legend of the Titanic could be seen everywhere. Museums around the world began featuring Titanic exhibits. Restaurants began recreating Titanic menus. I remember seeing a commercial on TV where for 1995, you could buy a mock-up of the necklace that rose drops in the ocean. The commercial was complete with a Leonardo DiCaprio lookalike.
1: 1,000 miles due east of Boston, in the unforgiving waters of the North Atlantic, a man will return to the most famous shipwreck of the 20th century, the Titanic.
14: Yeah, I think originally I wanted to sneak back. I didn't want a brass band. I just wanted to go back and, and pay my respects, because in a way I was, there was a sense of guilt, <laughs> having... Open Pandora's box by finding it.
1: For Ballard, this is an emotional journey, his first time back in 20 years. Since his remarkable discovery in 1985, the infamous liner has been prodded and poked at, wearing her away. Could Ballard have protected the Titanic from salvagers, who for nearly two decades have stripped her of her belongings?
14: It's ironic that had I taken something, could have said it's mine. And you know, told people to stay away and had some authority in doing that, but ironically, the law would have required me to forever salvage the Titanic till it was gone.
1: Unlike salvage expeditions, Ballard and his team will take pictures, not artifacts.
14: Uh, I sat on the sidelines for 18 years watching this circus unfold and and then when I started hearing things that I didn't believe were true that she was just disintegrating before our very eyes that I finally made the decision I I was going to go back but also I realized that I had to go back with a brass band I had to go back and really make it a public event because it was only by making it a public event that we might have a chance of showing what really happened to the Titanic and also to get the public and our government to to protect
0: it. You know, in a cemetery in my hometown of Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's a gravestone that reads, J. Dawson. Now that gravestone has been there since 1912. And in the months after the release of Titanic, a makeshift memorial began to spring up around the gravestone. Many people mistaking this J. Dawson for the fictitious character portrayed by Leo. Things got so out of control that a fence had to be erected around the gravestone and the graveyard had to be locked at night. The real Jay Dawson... A crew member who worked in the bowels of the ship. You know, I've always loved the movie Titanic. I saw it three times in the theater. But I will say, after working on this series about the history of the Titanic and rewatching the film a couple weeks ago, it's truly amazing just how accurate Cameron's work of fiction was. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. So, stand by. Okay. I think uh,
16: Terminator, Terminator was, uh, was made for our catering budget on Titanic. Jim, what is there about. I can't think of another word for it—the romance of this mm-hmm. tragedy mm-hmm. that has fascinated so many people. That's interesting that you use the word romance because I've actually said that, and of course it's in the it's in the darker, almost sort of more operatic use of the of the tragic use of the of the term. But you know, the 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 heart the heart wrench of. Literally hundreds and hundreds of women separated from their from their husbands, having to get into lifeboats, see them on the deck for the last time as they're being lowered away into the darkness, you know. I think that's one of the enduring images of of the real Titanic story. And so, you know, I thought if I if I make that as the as the backdrop to a love story, albeit a fictional love story, uh, you know, how much more of a turbocharged Experience of sort of of passion and heartbreak that might be. I mean, that was my initial sort of gut feeling that drew me to the to the arena of Titanic, of doing a love story on the Titanic. Now, you bring out in the film the fact that this was uh, quite a scandal in its day, because there was some talk that the Titanic sank because White Star Shipping was in this race to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. make. Faster, ever faster crossings across the Atlantic. Uh, Do you see that as part of the legend? Yeah, no, I I think I think it's I think it's historically accurate. I mean, this whole film was very, very intensely uh, uh, researched. Uh, What you'll uh, what you'll find with Titanic is everybody's got their own opinions of what uh, w- what were the factors, you know There's no there's no kind of absolute history. There's only there's only subjective history I think that it was very much a factor that the Cunard line and the White Star line were like the Coke and Pepsi of their time And they were constantly trying to one-up each other and it translated into dollars it translated into bottom-line business Very much the sort of you know corporate motivations that we might have right now today in 97 and will continue to have endlessly as long as people are still people People, um, you know and so here were these guys making making decisions playing with the, with the lives of of the people in their in their trust you know very much in the same way that, that uh, let's say an airline company has to make decisions about you know maintenance schedules and parts replacement and they are taking responsibility for the people on their aircraft and yet profit is profit is the other side of that equation you know there's so much of that in our lives in any technological world where we put our our lives and in, in, uh, in in, in the care of other people in a, in, a, in a technical medium, you know. I think it was uh, Truffaut said one time that we won't accept as moviegoers uh, grand passions from mm-hmm. contemporary characters. Mm-hmm. If you're going to tell a story about grand passions, mm-hmm. it has to be a period film. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was there about your two romantic leads that made you think they are capable of expressing these passions uh, well uh, I pray I cross my fingers I know that they're very good actors I see them I, I, I asked to see them work and, and do some scenes for me before uh, you know before I actually make the final decision although the scenes that I asked them to read were more of the getting to know you scenes than the than the big stuff because I don't know. I I felt that that was ultimately the harder thing to do than the big passionate moments. Because I think uh, uh, the part that the audience might believe less is the getting to know you. What's the initial attraction? What's the initial spark? And to make that believable and not feel too hurried or too sort of, you know, Hollywood um, artificial um I put my faith in actors, I put my faith in good actors to be able to get to that emotional place and and, and let it come pouring out. Finally, what is there about DiCaprio? What is there about Leo what is what, Who is this Leo guy you yes. know why is he so great? you know it's 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 amazing Leo Leo's got everything it takes and more to be the one of the biggest if not the biggest stars in the in the, in the world and it's a combination of of, uh, of the, the looks the charm the uniqueness because any great star has to be in some way unique um, and just solid, solid acting capability. I mean, he's just really so good. And I think Kate has that as well. I mean, I think Kate's a little further behind the curve than, than Leo is in stardom because she hasn't done enough mainstream stuff yet, but maybe Titanic will turn that around a All little right. bit. I have no doubt. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks. That was a good interview, Thank by you. the way.